high above 107 Columbia Street in the heart of Uptown Downtown Albany. Welcome to this week's edition of the Nipty Practice Tips. This week we are going on a magical mystery tour of the Grand Jury and discussing some of the most significant and dangerous areas of Grand Jury practice. And let's begin. Number one, and this should be number one on the list, sometimes you cannot amend an indictment. Even though the grand jury properly voted a specific charge and the evidence presented was sufficient to support that charge, if you fail to include that charge in the indictment due to nothing more than a clerical error, once the defendant has been arraigned on that indictment, the court is not permitted to amend the indictment to add that charge which was voted but not included in the indictment. This error is considered a, quote, failure thereof to charge or state an offense, which is listed in CPL 200.70 subdivision 2A as an amendment which is not permitted. So be careful out there and see the case law in the memo, which clearly demonstrates this is a hard and fast rule. Number two, are you permitted to redraft an indictment to correct clerical errors that cannot be cured by an amendment as we've just discussed? Yes, if you do it before the arraignment on the indictment. A clerical error in the indictment may be corrected before the defendant is arraigned. This is not considered an amendment of the indictment. In the case of People v. Gonzalez, a First Department case from 1996, the appellate division affirmed the motion court's decision not to dismiss the indictment as defective. The appellate division wrote, Defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment pursuant to CPL 210.20 subdivision 1 was properly denied since the prosecutor's corrective action in retyping a new indictment containing the counts actually voted by the grand jury and then having it signed by the foreperson prior to the arraignment of the defendant did not render the new document jurisdictionally defective. Number three, may an indictment be based on evidence that is ultimately suppressed? The answer is yes. An indictment is not rendered legally insufficient due to the fact that the identification procedure upon which it is based is subsequently suppressed. So held the Court of Appeals in People v. Gordon in 1996. Number four, does a grand jury presentation require evidence of how the defendant was identified to the police? The answer is no. While it is preferred practice in many jurisdictions to include evidence within the grand jury presentation that explains how the defendant was identified as the perpetrator, this evidence is not technically required. Take a look at the case of People v. Cedeno, a First Department case in 1999, in which the appeal was subsequently dismissed in that same year of 1999. Number five, if an indictment is based on insufficient evidence, May a conviction by way of either a trial or plea be reversed for that reason on appeal? Simple answer to that is no. CPL 210.30 subdivision 6 directs that an order of the court which finds the evidence in the grand jury sufficient to support the indictment is not reviewable on appeal from a conviction which is based on legally sufficient evidence. Number six. Must 12 grand jurors vote to either indict or dismiss for the grand jury to have taken action? The answer is yes. The effect of the grand jury being unable to muster 12 votes for either an indictment or a dismissal 
is that the grand jury has failed to take action upon the case presented to it. This result is not the equivalent to a no true bill vote. The Court of Appeals so held in People v. Ahrens in 2004. The court wrote, The issue in this case is whether a formal vote of 12 grand jurors is necessary to dismiss a charge. We conclude that it is, and we affirm the order of the appellate division. Number seven, does a hung grand jury require the people to secure court permission to resubmit the case to a new panel? The answer to that is yes. Quoting, it should be stressed that the relevant question for present purposes is not whether representation should in the end be allowed, but who should decide the issue, whether it should be the prosecutor or the court that judges if representation of a fully submitted but undisposed of count is appropriate. The Wilkins case requires that the court make that judgment to carry out the policies which CPL 190.753 was intended to accomplish. Quoting the case of People v. Creedle, another Court of Appeals decision, this one from 2011, of course, as we said in Wilkins, if the reasons for the withdrawal are legitimate and the underlying circumstances do not provide any clear indication that the first grand jury's decisional authority was being subverted, leave to represent should be granted as a matter of course. Number eight, when does the criminal court lose jurisdiction over a case for plea purposes in situations where the complaint charges only misdemeanors and the people intend to indict for felonies? Obviously, in situations like this, the defense may very well attempt to take a misdemeanor plea before the people are able to indict. When the people intend to present a case to the grand jury that only charges misdemeanors in the criminal court complaint, and they are not prepared to proceed before the grand jury on the first calendar day after the initial arraignment, the people will usually request an adjournment pursuant to CPL 17020, which precludes the court from accepting a plea to the misdemeanor charge at that time. In a court of appeals decision in the case of People v. Brancaccio from 1994, the court had in fact applied this 17020 rule to permit the people time to present such a case to the grand jury. During this adjournment period, the people presented the case to the grand jury. The grand jury voted a true bill, but the people had not yet filed the indictment by the adjourned date. In court, the defense argued successfully to the criminal court judge that the case was still a misdemeanor over which the criminal court had jurisdiction and the defendant pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge to satisfy the complaint. The people appealed and the Court of Appeals held that the criminal court lost jurisdiction for purposes of accepting a plea at the time the vote was completed. It was not required that the voted indictment have been filed for the criminal court to have lost jurisdiction. Number nine. Is the defendant's exculpatory statement to police required to be presented by the people to the grand jury as Brady material? The answer is no. In People v. Mitchell, a Court of Appeals decision from 1993, the Court of Appeals held that the people were not required to present such evidence to the grand jury. In Mitchell, the people presented separate inculpatory statements of the defendant, but not the additional separate exculpatory statements made by the defendant. The inspecting court dismissed the indictment. The First Department, however, reinstated the indictment and the Court of Appeals affirmed this ruling. Court held, the exculpatory statements were not part of a single statement in which inculpatory and exculpatory thoughts were expressed. 
defendant had the absolute right upon waiving immunity to testify before the grand jury and present exculpatory versions of the facts last but not least number 10 when corroboration evidence is required at trial is it also required in the grand jury the answer is yes when corroboration would be required at trial the same corroboration is required in the grand jury ccpl 190.30 subdivision 1 in the court of appeals decision of people v groff from 1987 the court held the critical issue is the standard of corroboration required by cpl 60.20 to establish a prima facie case when proof of the charges depend upon the testimony of the unsworn victim the statute is silent on the question and there has been substantial changes in public policy since this court last addressed it in the case of people v oyola we now hold that the evidence is sufficient if the unsworn victim's testimony is corroborated by evidence tending to establish the crime and connecting the defendant with its commission this when you thought it was safe to go back into the grand jury we have a bonus case for you number 11 if the court dismisses a count in the indictment and you wish to proceed on a lesser included offense which was made out must you file a new accusatory instrument if that particular charge was not in the original indictment the answer is a resounding yes cpl 210.20 subdivision 6 requires the people to file an indictment with the new charge within 30 days of the dismissal of the greater count the courts have determined this to be a jurisdictional defect if not properly followed thus a trial held without the filing of such an accusatory instrument is jurisdictionally defective and any plea or trial verdict that results from such procedure requires it to be vacated and that is exactly what happened in the case of people v stone in the third department 22119. please be sure to check the written version of this nipty practice tip for all the case citations and authority as always we want to thank our crack producer and professor jonathan marconi crispino to all of you out there be well and stay ready my friends <laughs>